Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today bright and early on a rather grim January morning for our first podcast of 2023 with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. A year of really exciting conversations and wonderful wonders begins on a rather grim day, but I'm sure our company will make up for all the grimness of the atmosphere. It's a grand setting beneath the slopes of Skelgill Bank, where the road forks, uh, and we're heading towards Cat Bells. What could be better? One of Lakeland's most enduringly popular fells, and a fell that, indeed, on Country Stride we have not yet climbed, in gorgeous Newlands Valley. And we're taking advantage, Mark, of a very rare dry weather window punctuating what is becoming a rain-washed January. Oh, it is indeed. There's uh, floodles everywhere, it seems like. <laughs> and our subject today, an author who has long been neglected, an author whose work fell out of favour, but who led a fascinating life at the early part of the last century. What are we talking about today, Mark? Well, we're talking about Sir Hugh Walpole, a writer who, as you say, was prodigious in his writing over the years, but since the Second World War has sort of drifted away and people don't talk of him in the same way that they once did. He was the big writer of his age and he had a big impact on the Lake District. Or should I say, the Lake District had a very big impact on him. Both ways around, I think. And the reason we're walking here is it's on the opposite flanks of this fell of Cat Bells that Walpole, after a life globetrotting, found what he called his little piece of heaven at Brackenburn, his home looking over Derwent Water, where we'll end today's walk. Uh, and who's our guest today, Mark? Well, somebody who has, in recent years, become fascinated with the writings of Hugh Walpole, and it is Simon Dunant. He's come up from London, he's now living in Cockermouth with his wife, and has... Uh, taken this area by storm and I hope he's going to take the storm away from us today. Fingers crossed I can see Simon there just at the very base of the uh, pitched path leading onto Skelgill Bank so let's go and catch up with Simon and start our narrative about this lost figure in Lakeland's history. Newlands Valley is waking up on a Monday morning. I hope the weather abates for the time being anyway. It looks like it is. I've got a lovely view back north towards Swinside. But beyond that, Skidder is somewhat swathed in cloud. Skelgill Bank rises abruptly from the road, pitched path that has been necessarily installed because it's a heavily used path, understandably because Cat Bells is such a spellbinding summit. I'm in the company of Simon Dunant, and it's wonderful. I see you've got a Peter Storm jacket on. I hope that's uh, not a portent. That's <laughs> <laughs> Storm for you. But hey, it's great to meet you, uh, Mark, and uh, it's good to be here to talk about uh, Hugh Walpole today. Now, a little bit about your own personal background. Yes, well, I first discovered Walpole in uh, 2011. I picked up a book in a charity shop, and really Walpole's brought me to Cumbria. I've been collecting his works now for over 12 years and it's been a fascinating journey researching the life and the works of Sir Hugh Walpole who many people may never have heard of. So the walk we're going to do today, which is one I know quite well, how does it fit into the story? Hugh Walpole made his home here in the Lakelands at Brackenburn on the face of Cat Bells overlooking Derwent Water. That walk goes past many of the places where he would have sat down, had a picnic with uh, his family and his closest friends. And so much of Hugh Walpole's later life is so wrapped up in Cat Bells and this area. 
it's fitting that we're making that walk up Cat Bowes today. As Tommy made a start, that uh, impending slope beckons and I can't wait to reach the first brow. Well, we come to the first bend on the ascent. I'm sure quite the majority of people who ascend Catbells this way will pause, as we are doing now, and comprehend this magnificent view of the foot of Derwentwater with its islands, uh, with Wallow Crag behind and uh, Bleabury Fell and beyond. You're looking at the lower slopes of Blencathrin Skidder. I say lower slopes because the cloud has claimed the tops. In this situation, we want to talk about the early life of Hugh Walpole himself, his parents. Where were they living when he was born? Well, they were actually living in New Zealand. His parents uh, were in the clergy, Somerset Walpole, his father, was posted around many places. He ended up in Truro, got married there, and then they went off to New Zealand on a mission there, uh, which was kind of unsuccessful because Walpole's mother never really got on uh, being a local Truro girl in New Zealand. So uh, Walpole's father, knowing that New Zealand's not going to work out, he takes a post in New York that's given to him by the clergy. But again, Walpole's mother, Mildred, doesn't have that wanderlust. So she decides to go back to England and stay with her family. By now, Hugh's been born. She's got a little baby in tow. A lot of this wanderlust means that really because his mother was uncomfortable she didn't really show him a lot of love. He was kind of separated from his family um, at a very young age. There was no family unit that was all in one place at that time. So we have this picture of uh, Mildred and her son, Hugh, living in Truro, but she then departs back to join her husband and uh, Hugh comes with them. So they spend a short time there together as a family unit. Yes, they're on the move again. I don't think the family support in Truro for his mother really worked out very well. Uh, Mildred takes Hugh and also his sibling now back to America to be with their father, Somerset Walpole. And they all live for a couple of years in America, in New York. Moving to uh, the States, uh, did Hugh, he's only young, I suppose, nine or ten, did he uh, gel or fit in? Not really. I mean, as any child being moved about in that situation, it was very difficult to make any friends or long-lasting child relationships that you might do if you've lived for any length of time in one single place. Being moved about really did affect him. He was a very lonely child. He was in America between seven and nine, and then the family decided that Hugh should grow up as an Englishman. And once again, they moved him about, but this time on his own. They sent him back to England to take up his education in a boarding school on his own without his family. Did he go to Truro? Yes, so he went back to Truro initially. That was where the family was. He went into a small boarding school there. In the Victorian times, wasn't great. It was um, a pretty grim place to be. Because he was unhappy there, they moved him to uh, another school which was recommended to him by the clergy, which was Sir William Borlas's school in Marlow. So we find him in Marlow in a, what turned out to be a very tough time in his life. Talking about tough, I think we ought to tough it and go up the sofa a bit further ourselves, Simon. We come up to the next hairpin where the easy graded path becomes stepped again. Now the view today opens up sufficiently to see snow. You can just see it on the dods on the Helvellyn range and back down the dale towards Glaramara. You can see the snow there. So that's a sign that winter is still with us. We are actually still in terms of Hugh in Marlow. He's a, a young lad. He's having a, a torrid time. He's about 10. What's life like for him there? He was really frightened and miserable there. There was some ferocious bullying, lots of physical abuse and humiliation from the pupils. He later said when he wrote in his diaries, he said, the food was inadequate, the morality was twisted, and terror, sheer, stark, unblinking terror, stared down every one of its passages at Marlow. The excessive desire to be loved that's always played so enormous part in my life was bred largely, I think, from the neglect I suffered there. So it really formed a part of his mind that stayed with him for a very long time. He distrusted people a lot from that point on. Did his parents pick up on this? Not for a very, very long time. Um, I think it was about three or four years that this went on, which in the life of a child, these were his formative years that really shaped the young mind. 
It wasn't until it was finally discovered that uh, his parents then finally took him away from this madness and they moved him through a family friend to Canterbury. Canterbury proved very informative to his understanding of literature, I believe. He spent a lot of time with his uh, godfather, Arthur Mason. By this time, I think he'd academically actually switched off because he associated school with not very nice things. So uh, I don't think he did very well academically, but he did spend a lot of time in his godfather's library and Arthur Mason introduced him to classic literature and that is where I think he found his escape from this trauma of life. His love for literature really flourishes after he leaves school. Yes, that's right. Um, And then he moves uh, to Durham, where his parents had moved yet again for the clergy post. And he moves up to Durham to St Bede's College. And uh, he spends time in the old subscription library in the town. He really devours the classic literature. He's introduced to Trollope, Wilkie Collins, and as much classic literature as there were on the shelves. It's said that he spent probably more time in the library and the local bookshops than he ever did at home, in fact. (laughs) One of his early heroes was the writer Sir Walter Scott. Where did he pick that up? So Walter Scott was his mentor and hero, effectively. When Hugh took time off school in his school years, um, he was sent to Kingston Deverill to stay with uh, somebody at the rectory there for a summer break. It was there on the shelves of the rectory that there was hundreds of Sir Walter Scott books and that particular holiday really caught his imagination and he really fell in love with Sir Walter Scott there. And a few years later they had family trips, uh, holidays in the Lake District. Where did they come? Summer family holidays during the Durham years were spent at Sourmire Farm, in fact, near Gosforth, between Westwater and Seascale. He stayed with a farming family named Armstrong, and that was his first love affair with the lakes. While he was here, he climbed Scaffell, Great Gable, he visited Borrowdale, Keswick, Derwent Water, Lodorf Falls, Coniston Windermere, and he spent a lot of time uh, on the shore at Seascale, looking out to the Isle of Man, That, I think, is his first inspiration and love and connection with the lakes. There's a lovely quote in his autobiographical book, The Apple Trees. He writes in later life, I remember too how, with these, my worldly possessions still clutched in my hand, I stood on the pebbly path that bordered the garden behind Sourmire Farm and drank in the scene. That moment was my initiation, that little windy garden smelling of cow dung, carnations, snapdragons. On clear days, it was said that you could catch a vision of the Isle of Man. I can imagine that. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Anyway, we'll plod a bit further up the slope. We're making good headway, uh, certainly in the life of that young lad. Uh, but uh, Skelgill Bank is not yet conquered. You come up to the brow of Skelgill Bank, Just short of it, there's a very warm and very awkward exposure of rock. Uh, And set against it is a plaque to Thomas Arthur Leonard, founder of the Cooperative and Communal Holidays and father of the open-air movement in this country. Born in London, March 1864, died Conway, July 1948. Believing that the best things any mortal hath are those which every mortal shares. Anyway, this is a Grand spot, you can look back towards Bassenthwaite Lake. We're entering into a phase in Hugh Walpole's life where things creatively and in literary terms really take off. And I believe he only just scraped into Cambridge University. How did that go? (laughs) Well, it's true. Hugh surprisingly managed to get a place at Cambridge, possibly through family connections more than anything else. And I think that Hugh's father's expectations were that Hugh would follow him into the clergy and maybe he would study that at Cambridge. But uh, a fellow of Magdalene, Arthur Benson, was a courager of useful talent at Cambridge. And Hugh and Arthur Benson really hit it off. They were both fanatic about classic literature. And Arthur Benson was a key person in Hugh Walpole's life that really started the fire uh, for him to think about becoming a writer and that that was actually possible. You've got this uh, conflicted young lad between Arthur Benson and his dad, both pulling him creative in two different directions. How did this play out? Ultimately, Hugh thought that he should honour his dad and give it a go in the clergy. So his father arranged a trip to uh, Liverpool. He put him in charge of the Mersey Sea Mission, preaching to uh, the sailors, trying to convert them to the church. So he tried that for a little while, failed miserably and ended up with the sailors in a drinking den. Um, 
And on one night, he looked over the Mersey and he just said to himself, I'm through with it. I'm going to be a writer. This is what I was born to do. And there is actually a very telling quote. Yes, in his small, privately printed autobiographical work, The Crystal Box, he writes this. He says, I went down to the Mersey and there, looking at the river, I had one of the most important hours of my life. That foaming flood tossing in the grey froth and spume out to sea was invincibly strong and mighty. Ships of all sizes were passing. Gulls were wheeling with hoarse screams above my head. Then the sun broke the clouds and suddenly the river was violet with silver lines and circles. At that moment, the ferry arrived from the other side. People pushed out and passed me. I loved it. I adored it. But not for me to try and change it. Looking out to sea where a great liner slowly took the sun like a queen, I vowed that I would be a novelist, good or bad, for the remainder of my earthly days. That has a very religious tenor to it. Yeah, there was an essence of rebellion, I think, against religion, perhaps. But, I mean, there was a sense of determination that that was his destiny. So you could say there was something spiritual in that, for sure. I'm sure it was a very spiritual moment for him, and it definitely changed his life. And what fascinates me, I think, about Hugh Walpole is that very determination and where he got that from. Let's push that forward 10 years. That promise he made to himself is fulfilled. That's correct, yeah. His determination pulls through. His parents move again from Durham to London in Lambeth. Uh, His father becomes a rector of Lambeth. And Hugh goes and spends some holidays in London, becomes part of the literary scene there. He gets a job in a publishing house, learns the ropes of how the literary world works. What an introduction. And he starts making contacts. And he starts writing his first manuscript, The Wooden Horse, And eventually, through his determination, that is accepted by Smith Elder and published, and he's on his way. Top of the mineral vein uh, above Uzikar, there's a pool here on the basic ridge that is otherwise dry, we have this little cutting, so it gives us a little bit of lee to shelter from the breeze uh, to talk about Hugh at a time of his really rich vein of success and involvement in the Society of London. He was deeply embedded in London now after his first manuscript had been accepted. He's fervently writing more. He was really in with the literati of the day, the Bloomsbury set, people like Virginia Woolf. He was introduced by Arthur Benson to Henry James, in fact, who made a big impression on him as well. So he was really embedded in that London literary life and he really started to enjoy it and his career took off and subsequently with all the royalties that started coming in from the books that he was starting to write and and being published, he really had the means to take people out to the theatre, go to these large lavish lunches But of course, there is another side to this that made it a little bit more awkward. Some of the people in his circles said he could be a bit fickle with his friends, and he did sometimes feel that if one of his friends wasn't very supportive of his work, that he could drop them like like a stone. So he did make a few, not enemies, but people who were a bit wary of him. At this time of his life, he was discovering his sexuality. Uh, He was a gay man. At that time, homosexuality was illegal. So he was very wary that if he did make some enemies, potentially, you know, competition in that sphere was fierce, that that could be used against him. So I think he chose his friends carefully as well. What was the stature of the man? What did he look like? Yeah, well, he always felt a bit ungainly and awkward. If you could paint this picture in your mind of a a very socially awkward person, which sounds a bit odd considering he had to move in those circles. Uh, He had poor eyesight and had these strange glasses from an early age that he felt very self-conscious about. All this made him for quite an ungainly figure, in fact. And what was his personality? He was very focused on what he wanted to do and maybe some people felt that he could be a bit arrogant and maybe walk all over relationships with people. And was he able to form any close relationships? As I say, he was quite wary of doing so because he didn't know the consequences of it, but he did manage to find his first love with uh, Percy Anderson, a theatre designer. He was with him for a a number of years, about seven or eight years, and they even ended up investing in a a small cottage in Porpero in Cornwall, which was uh, one of his writing retreats that he purchased with his wealth. So he did find some love there, but uh, Percy Anderson didn't eventually turn out to be his long-term special friend. The notion of a special friend for him had great importance. 
coming from the background of his family, he never really had close relationships. I do feel he, he wanted that warmth and security of a relationship, and he was seeking that. And it was ever more difficult because of his sexuality. So he was trying to find somebody that he could really trust in life. His writing was very successful now. He had a, a bond uh, with somebody who felt very close to, but it's all going to be disruptive, and we're going to disrupt this conversation and go a little bit further up the ridge. Wow, this is wonderful. We come to the saddle just short of the final rise up onto Cat Bells itself, which is quite formidable from here. There's a steady flow of people coming along the ridge so that other people have looked at the weather forecast like we did and uh, have made the right choices in coming out early. Uh, we've got to this point in Walpole's life where things were going well, literally, but the war intervened. And he wanted to contribute. Yes, that's right. He did want to contribute to the war effort. Um, he tried to get work as a war correspondent at the Daily Mail, but actually that turned out to be a false offer and the job didn't exist. And then he tries to enlist, and because of his poor eyesight, he couldn't enlist either. But he was given an opportunity to go to Russia to write propaganda articles. So he takes that up, and while he's in Russia, he actually starts to mix with other writers, including the famous playwright Edward Knobloch and Arthur Ransom as well. We've encountered him already in our <laughs> travels with Country Stride. Writers were, were hired because they were obviously the creatives of the day. While he's there, he also continues to write books, amazingly, under all of this craziness of war. He writes The Golden Scarecrow, which is a children's book. He continues to write home to Henry James, who he built up a really good relationship with as well. And the letters that come back from Henry James are that London really misses you. <laughs> <laughs> the figures in the literary world that didn't go out to Russia, they were all still partying in London, and it's like, where's you? <laughs> <laughs> we move through the war a bit, and it becomes increasingly traumatic. He actually ends up joining the Red Cross on the front lines, helping in the field hospitals. I mean, he develops dysentery, nearly dies while he's in Russia. Um, he starts having recurrent nightmares because he's dragging corpses off the battlefield every day. Um, one time when his Russian colleagues refused to go out on the battlefield to collect a body of a dying man, um, Hugh takes out a stretcher on his own to retrieve this soldier. Later, he receives the George Cross for this act. So he really was entrenched in the front line of the war and the horrors that happened, and it caused him a lot of mental discomfort and nightmares. Coming face to face with death, he now had a new perspective on our relationship with a greater being. Well, that's very true. He had turned his back on the clergy and the whole religious side of his background. He writes about his experience of being on the battlefield. Um, there's a small passage that's really profound about a moment on the front line. He said that there was a day during the horrible retreat towards Trinople when, in an indescribable melee of confusion and horror, I succoured a dying Austrian officer. He babbled words that I could not understand. His face, part of which had been blown away, was dreadful. But as he lay in my arms, I loved him with a force and conviction that now, after all these years, and in spite of all the other human beings whom I at this time cared for, remains vivid and intense in my memory. Physically, he had no form. Intellectually, I could have no communication with him. The time of our contact was about half an hour in length, but my spirit and his achieved a relationship during that time once and for all. That trauma notwithstanding, he, he makes his move back to London, but he was unsettled. Yes, very much so. I think his experiences on the front line made him think about life in a different vein. When he came back to London, he was still in those literary circles, but he felt that he really wanted somewhere now where he could devote to his writing and take his career to the next level. He couldn't do it in London. There was too many parties. So he decided that he would take uh, in his Rolls Royce that he'd purchased with his uh, chauffeur that he'd hired now with all of his amazing wealth. A trip. Uh, being an author myself, I know that scenario. <laughs> and so he took a trip to the Lake District because he wanted to find a retreat where he could write his books um, so he headed in 1923 to the Lake District because he wanted to go back to his childhood days where he'd come here and loved this area so much. And in the, his private scrapbook, Cottage and a Cow, in his own words, Hugh documents how a cottage on the banks of Derwentwater found him. In it, he writes, I discovered my cottage in the usual God-was-watching-over-me atmosphere. There is no one who has discovered the perfect place who does not regard Providence as his special intimate. The circumstances, however, in my instance, were peculiar. I had for a long while wished to live in Cumberland. 
Now, my intention was that there would be a garden, a little wood, a running stream, many birds and a big room, as big as the rest of the cottage for my books. All these things I was convinced were waiting for me. It was though I had seen the place in a dream. And for more than a week, we motored and motored. It seemed the district did not want me. It seemed that the cottage of my dreams was lost in my dreams and could not find its way out again. We became very depressed, my friend and I. There came the day we abandoned the search and we were having trouble with a car as we began our journey for Scotland. At that moment, the miracle occurred. As we left, the lady of the hotel, bidding us farewell, said, There was a very nice cottage I saw last Sunday overlooking the lake. It had a for sale sign in the garden. Impossible, we declared. We've been twice round the lake, the lady insisted. I saw it last Sunday. The car began to splutter. We shall try again. Round the lake we went once more, and there it was, a cottage of grey stone in the hollow of the hill, above the trees, with a wood, a running stream, two silver birch and a squirrel on the lawn. I run up the little path, looked down to the lake, across to Skidor and Blencathra. An elderly lady came towards me. How much is this cottage, I asked. So much, she replied. And there is a big room for your books at the end of the lawn. I'll buy it, I said, for how can you deny your dream? My friend gasped and pulled me by the sleeve, but I was past all caution, and I signed a paper. When I reached London, my solicitor, who was a wise, cynical man, said, What are the drains like? Mm, I didn't ask. How many rooms are there? I don't know. You're completely crazy. No, I'm not, said Hugh. I saw it in a dream. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That was tremendous, that lovely scramble up the summit. It's one of the special things about the route up Cat Bells. It attracts thousands of people, but they have a little bit of a surprise when they get to that point where, just short of the summit, they're actually having to grapple with rock. <laughs> but when you get to the top, there's a National Trust circular slate plinth with one of Wainwright's panorama dials on the top, which is rather fun. Many people come here because of Wainwright. But the view, it's splendid at this moment. I was not expecting this. I can see the Helvellyn range very strikingly beyond High Seat and Bleabury Fell. You can see right up to Clough Head. And that's all snow covered, which is wonderful. And then looking more to the south over Ellscarf and High Rays and that distinctive little pimple of Pikestickle, which is one of those elements of the Langdale Pikes that you can see whether you're at a Lowood Hotel at the head of Windermere or here. It's just one of those little linchpin summits. And then I can see Glara Mara beyond Rosswaite Fell, Maiden Moor, Hindscarth, Robinson, and then Newlands Halls. And you can just see through the gap towards Red Pike, uh, then round by Knot Rig and Ard Crags and then that wonderful ridge from Wand Up and the cloud is just mantling over Crag Hill and uh, Sail but you can see Scar Crags and Causey Pike and Rowling End and then the cloud is blanketing the top of Grisdale Pike and then further round Bassenthwaite is clearly in view but Skidder has managed to be cut off at about 2,700 feet, I'd say. You could almost see all of Blencathra, but not quite. So you've got quite a view, and quite a view down on Derwentwater itself. And most importantly of all, you can see Manstai Park, the woodland, and Brackenburn. We'll be coming there very shortly, but for most people coming to the top of Cat Bells, it's a great wow moment just to stand here and take in the view. Just as Sir Hugh Walpole himself regularly came up here, it was a bracing place to come any time. What's your feeling about this site, Simon? Well, it's definitely worth the scramble. I think people are quite surprised by uh, the scramble at the top, but it's well worth it. Looking over Derwent Water, there's just fantastic vistas from here. I think anybody who comes here has to do cat bells and look at this vista. It's breathtaking. Well, we'll leave the Bare Rock Summit uh, to the next uh, group of walkers. We'll get off and, and get away from the breeze a bit and head towards Horsgate and get a little bit more of the Hugh Walpole story as we are approaching our final leg of the journey. come down below Horsgate onto the pitched path which is in good fettle now 
Looking down on Derwentwater, the head of the lake, and the River Derwent itself, the lake level is high. There's a tremendous amount of flooding there. So what I call the uh, Chinese bridge near Lador Falls, it crosses the valley. I would think you couldn't get across there now. You've got a view across towards uh, Ashness Farm, that white farmstead over there, Borodell Hotel. Hugh Walpole was so captivated by this, it inspired him to create the saga of the Herod's Chronicles, which were like his love letter to the lakes. Yeah, it really was his step into his epic historical fiction series. It had been on his mind all his life, even from those early days in uh, Gosforth with a family, that he started thinking of the big family sagas there. The epic landscapes here in the Lake District inspired him to take that leap and follow in the footsteps of uh, his hero, Sir Walter Scott. So it was that the first in the series was Rogue Herries, an 18th century family saga about the world and tormented Francis Herries, who starts a new life in Cumberland. And so it began. <laughs> There were key places that could be identified or could not, maybe. Hugh Walpole, he played tricks with his readers with locations. You, you never really knew if they were real or if they weren't. Many of the places were based on real locations. Sometimes they were completely fictional. Many times they were a bit of both. Hazelbank Hotel and Country House in Borodale, or Hugh Walpole stayed there and made it a fictional home uh, of the Harris family. Was that where he made that special trip when he found Brackenburn? Uh, yes, it was, yeah. Amazingly, that's where it all started, and it's fitting that his epic saga started there as well. And uh, Wattenlath, Judith Paris, one of his other books in the series, uh, was used as its main setting there. And there was a couple of farmers who were constantly arguing over which one of their farms was Judith's home, and actually Hugh Walpole broke them up and said neither. <laughs> but they both claimed it. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Roke Harris uses Oldale as the location for David Harry's farmhouse. Like uh, a skidder, that is. Yeah. Nearby Irby is the location for Walter Harry's home in the fortress. And Walpole sometimes worshipped at St Andrew's Church in Borrowdale, mentions it in his writings. And his home, Brackenburn, features in Vanessa. So, you know, he really dotted them through this saga and immersed himself in the area. So how many titles were there in the Roke Harris series? So there are actually six the last and final one, in fact, uh, remained unfinished but did get published. Uh, there was Rogue Harry's in 1930, Judith Paris in 1931, The Fortress in 1932, The Bright Pavilions in 1940, and as I say, in 1941, it ended in Catherine Christian. So it really was a massive, epic saga. And I think if Hugh Walpole was alive today, he'd be writing Netflix box sets and soap operas. What spurred him? What sort of themes did he play with most? Well, interestingly, the themes that run through the historical fiction were, were families and dynasties. But he didn't kind of have that in his own background. So maybe he was writing this, this family saga of drama and intrigue and infighting. It's a surrogate family in his head, maybe. My mentor was Alfred Wainwright, and he always said that his guides were his love letter to the lakes. Was that true of uh, Hugh Walpole? Yeah, I mean, I think he wanted to give back to the community that gave him so much with writing the Harry's books. He quotes me in his diaries. He says that, I love Cumberland with all my heart and soul uh, is another reason for my pleasure in writing these Harry's books. That Cumbrians, in spite of my foreignness, have been so kind to me is my good fortune. So I think that very much is, what can I give back to the area that's given me so much? Uh, what was the public reaction to them? He was always very nervous about how uh, his books were taken, even the ones that he was confident in writing. But this was a departure for, for Walpole because previously he'd really made his mark in gothic fiction, gothic macabre, some romantic novels. Um, so historical fiction was a gamble for him. How strong were the sales? Yeah, sales were really good. At first, when he talked to his publisher, in fact, uh, his publisher was saying that he'd never be able to sell any of these. Walpole convinced his publisher to take the gamble. Um, and of course, the royalties just kept coming in. So it was very well received. Yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> You come down quite a way down the slope. There's a few bits of dappling of sunlight coming across the vale. And uh, the surface of Derwentwater itself, you can see areas where the wind is just catching it, ruffles the surface. It makes uh, a lovely texture to the lake itself. Talking about texture. How did uh, Hugh settle into the texture of this community here? It was quite radical change from London life. 
He made a lot of friends in the locality. Um, he was friends with George Abraham, who was a famous photographer, and he took him up Skidor, and they went to Skidor House uh, when it was a shooting lodge. But also he integrated in the local community. He was a great chess player and was part of Keswick Chess Club. And he even sponsored some of the local tennis tournaments and bought their cups and gave them in presentations, etc. So I think Cumbrians took him to heart. Once he was mistaken for a Cumbrian when he was on a walk, he got... <laughs> caught up in a flock of sheep and a passing driver shouted at him to keep his sheep under control and he was kind of quite proud of that. He was not divorced from London life though, all the same. No, he used Brackenburn as his writing room where he come to do the writing. He couldn't really concentrate in London, but he still had to be part of that set to get those publishers and make those contacts. So he still travelled back and forth from London in his Rolls Royce. <laughs> he would spend a good six to eight weeks at a time here writing his books and then it was back to London. It was really, you know, a to and fro. The chauffeur of the Rolls Royce, was that significant? Well, it was. Um, originally, Douglas Chanter was his chauffeur, but uh, a couple of years later in London, he met a person that went on to be his significant partner uh, for the rest of his life, Harold Cheevers. He met him in London. Hugh Walpole lost his wallet at a party, as the story goes. Harold Cheevers was uh, a policeman, a married policeman with two boys, and he turned up on his doorstep at Piccadilly and returned his wallet. And the two kind of hit it off. They invited him in, they had a chat, uh, and they went on to become good friends and uh, eventually life partners. A couple of years later, he installed him as uh, his chauffeur. So it was actually Harold Cheevers that became not only his rock, but he travelled everywhere with him as his chauffeur secretary uh, in the Rolls-Royce as well, yeah. As they discovered their relationship, uh, Hugh and Harold, the way Hugh described that time of his life was that he said uh, of his relationship with Harold, the most wonderful of all things in life, I believe, is the discovery of another human being with whom one's relationship has a glowing depth, beauty and joy as the years increase. He said that this inner progressiveness of love between two human beings is a most marvellous thing. It cannot be found by looking for it or by passionately wishing for it. It's a sort of divine accident. So he was now well ensconced in Brackenburn. He was making lashings of money. How did he use that money? Yeah, well, by this time, he was well into his career. There was many books that were bringing in royalties from all over the world, and he was doing American tours, literature tours, and speaking tours. He purchased a house for Harold and his family in Hampstead, which is no mean feat. He also leased a flat in Piccadilly overlooking Green Park uh, within view of Buckingham Palace, opposite the Ritz. Uh, and also up here in Cumberland, he installed housekeepers, because obviously Brackenburn was becoming a responsibility. So he bought them a house, and he called it Copperfield, because in his American uh, endeavours had edited some films and also David O. Selznick's uh, version of David Copperfield he was involved in the screenwriting for that so he named the house in Grange Copperfield and installed his housekeepers in Copperfield there to this day if you visit Copperfield in Grange uh, the gate still bears the name Copperfield that he put on the gate at the time it's amazing other than property did he spend it on anything else absolutely he was always at auction buying artwork and we're not talking some of the um, local auction artworks he was always at Christie's and all the big art sales, buying Cezanne's, Constable's, all the well-known artworks. It's beyond belief that he could afford any of these, but he was always raising his hand to buy them at auction. And he would always return to Cumberland with the boot full of old books, old masters, etc. And his flat in Piccadilly, they were all stacked up there. His house in Brackenburn, they were all stacked up there. He had 30,000 books in his library at Brackenburn. And if that wasn't enough, the poor housekeepers down at Copperfield, Hugh would turn up on his endeavours back from London, stop off at Copperfield and fill up their rooms with old masters as well. So he really was squirrelling all this stuff away. Nothing got hung on a wall. <laughs> no, it was all stacked behind sofas, would you believe? Unbelievable. He also, invariably, I would imagine, would have attracted some famous visitors. Well, very much. I think he used the Brackenburn as a retreat. Uh, J.B. Priestley was a regular there. Sinclair Lewis came over with his new wife in the 1930s uh, and stayed there quite famously as well. But he was always hosting the literati here because he wanted to share that retreat with others um, and he saw that as his, his base. Well, during the course of our walk, we've really picked up on the tough times in his youth... He sort of transcended that. Did he find contentment in his later years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he described Brackenburn as a little heaven on cat bells. And I think he could, to a certain extent, find his privacy 
I mean, he was obviously a bit of a local celebrity, but not in the same way as he was a celebrity in London. So I think he came here and this was his piece. And this is where he wanted to share it with his life partner. He wanted to find that peace and tranquility. Uh, he had some interesting connections and he travelled, as we said, but I believe he went to Munich and met Adolf Hitler. What was the story there? Well, yes, in 1925, on a trip to Munich, he did meet Hitler, in fact. He described the future Fuhrer as shabby, unkempt, very feminine, excitable, as well as fearfully ill-educated and quite tenth-rate, and likened him to mediums that he'd seen at Arthur Conan Doyle's flat. Um, in his diaries, he writes uh, of meeting Hitler, I was wrong about one thing, his evil, he wrote. I didn't detect it then. And Walpole concluded, why didn't I put poison in his coffee at Wanfried? Well, we go a little bit further down towards Brackenburn, and I think we've turned the spotlight, and there's plenty of spotlight down at uh, Rosswaite at the moment. We'll turn it on you. We come a little bit further down, now out of the wind, so it's good to pause again. I'd like to just turn the tables a little on you. I'd really like to know what drew you into the world of Sir Hugh Walpole. Well, I was always an avid reader of fiction. And I was scouting through the books uh, on a charity shop shelf in North London one rainy day, looking for a new read. Um, and I came across a, a copy of Fortitude, one of Hugh Walpole's books. I opened it up and it was just the words on the first page that captivated me. "'Tis not life that matters, but the courage you bring to it." And it was such a profound statement that I thought, well, I'm going to buy the book just for that statement and then find out what the story is about. So I took the book home, started reading it, found it was a page turner, thought, well, I must find out more about the person and the mind behind somebody who could write something as powerful as this. Um, and that's where the journey started. <laughs> and so where did it go from there? As I started finding out more and more about Hugh Walpole, I found out that he was very forgotten and like nobody was talking about him. And I was like, well, okay, let me find out more about him. I think the thing that fascinated me, that he was a self-made man, and because he came from struggles that we've talked about in this podcast, my fascination was his sense of overcoming that. And how did he do it? What could I learn from him? So... It took me really into the depths of his life. I really wanted to find out so much more about him. To build into your own life? Yeah, really. You know, there were quite a few synergies with his life, not in terms of the clergy and stuff, but in terms of my background, I was always looking for, for a home and to settle down somewhere. Um, and there are a lot of themes in his life that I actually felt a lot of synergy with. So it was fascinating to see how another person could overcome them in more difficult times. Well, with your dear wife, Kate, you've made the full-time move here. Are you both finding it special? Absolutely. And you know what? I wouldn't be in Cumbria if it wasn't for Hugh Walpole, because I believe that Hugh Walpole drew me here. It kind of feels like a journey where he said, this was where I found my peace. Maybe this is where you could find your peace too. And so that journey has been a personal journey along that way as well. 2022, I had the opportunity to move up here to the Lake District. And, and you know, it's the best move I've ever made. Well, we come down onto the terrace path, which is very popular and understandably so. It makes a wonderful little circuit for anybody going over cat bells and wants to enjoy the lake as well. It's brought us down to a lovely view onto Brackenburn, the house, his home. And there is a tumbling stream, as he mentioned in his dream of a cottage, coming down the fell side. Maybe that is the Bracken Burn, as in the stream in the Bracken. But of course, it might, and my little hypothesis is, Bracken was in the past burnt to make potash fertiliser, so it might have been a place where historically they were burning Bracken. But nonetheless, it's a great little spot to comprehend the view. And you can see the house quite well, largely the roof of it, with its dormer gables, slate roof, that distinctive Honister slate, beautifully enclosed in an arboretum of trees, uh, with birch trees below. And Hugh Walpole mentioned about the squirrels, you can understand that that is a place where squirrels would be abundant even to this day. We are now on this lovely spot, a balcony with a, a stone seat and on a rock face directly overlooking the house, there is a plaque. Simon, could you read the plaque for us? It reads, to the memory of Sir Hugh Walpole, CBE of Brackenburn, this seat is erected by his friend Harold Cheevers, September 1941. Can we rewind from his death 
back the final few years because they are significant. He died in 1941, the beginning of the war. He felt that he spent too much time in Cumbria. He travelled a lot to London to give some radio broadcasts. He was quite busy there. While he was in London, he was shaken badly. I mean, there was the Blitz. His Hampstead houses were bombed. His Piccadilly flat got obliterated. And the nervous disposition that he carried through his life really didn't help. When he came back to Cumbria, he joined the Keswick War Weapons Week in 1941, where they had a long march. And he completed the whole march and made a speech from a platform in Fitz Park. And he went home completely exhausted. And I think the effects of the war, that exhaustion, a combination of a weak heart and possibly some pneumonia that he got from the march, much as well, um, caused his health to deteriorate. And sadly, he died in his home at Brackenburn with Harold by his side on June the 1st, 1941. So how old would he have been then? He was just a mere 57. And when you consider how many books and what he packed into his life in such a short life, it is actually an incredible life. Would you have a, a view on his legacy? He is a forgotten author, but I think he has brought so much literature to the world. His legacy in in terms of what he left after his death, he left 14 of his many artworks to the Tate Gallery in the Fitzwilliam Museum. And there was many more galleries that were given these artworks after his death. Dorothy, his sister, also gifted a chess set to the local chess club in Keswick as well, which they used as a trophy. Um, He did leave a huge unpaid tax bill, so that was part of the legacy, which which is probably how he afforded a lot of the better things in life. Um, I mean, more locally, there is a section in Keswick Museum that's dedicated to the memory of Hugh Walpole. There's a painting of Walpole in his study by Stephen Bone and a bust of Walpole by Epstein. I think he gave a, a lot back, and I think there's a lot that's left to be discovered as well. We mentioned right at the outset that he's largely been forgotten. Have you an explanation for that? Yeah, well, I think after the war, maybe people were looking forward. The 1950s were a very forward-looking era. Perhaps people weren't looking backwards to the classic literature so much at that time. Just before his death, there was a kind of altercation with Somerset Maughan, who wrote Cakes and Ale, uh, a book that portrayed a upcoming writer as a bit of a snobbish and priggish person in the literary world. And it was said that Hugh Walpole was that character. And there was a lot of altercations. I don't think either party came out of it too well. So the, the funeral, was that a big affair? It wasn't. It was just attended by a few locals, his sister, his brother... Um, and the Cheevers family, those who were close to him. I mean, in life, he only had a few trusted circle of friends, and I think in death was the same. But he's buried in St uh, John's Church in Keswick, in the graveyard. It's a beautiful Celtic cross there that overlooks his beloved cat bells uh, and Derwent water. It's a fabulous place to visit if you're ever in the area. I go there now to put some flowers on his grave because no one ever does. Hopefully, with your help with this podcast, etc., we can all bring back Hugh Walpole to the fore uh, and show people some of the beautiful writing that was inspired by this beautiful area. To wind up the podcast, which has been absolutely magic, um, we've asked you, can you identify a passage that you think sums up the man? In 1934, there was a a book that was published called The English Country, um, and it was published as a compilation of some of the, the local writers here in Cumbria on what they thought about the area. And these are the most fitting words, I think, really sum up everything about what we've been talking about today. He says, When I stand on Esk Horse and look down to Eskdale, I make my proper obeisance to the Collingwoods, the Calverts, the Cassons and the great company of ghosts behind them, from the author of Old Bob to Wordsworth. But I know something that they none of them can ever have known, how it feels to discover by a miracle that you are not homeless and wanderless as you had once supposed, but on this spot your feet touch the ground and the ground does not reject you. And until you die, there is an acre of soil that is friendly and sip to you. Journey's end, and we are at the base of Catbells again. The weather is closing in, Mark. We made the best use of that lovely weather window and first drops of rain hitting. We've been blessed. I think in terms of the overall podcast, we've been blessed because Simon was excellent. It was a fascinating story. I'm itching to read some of the works of Hugh Walpole and Simon's on a mission to raise his profile. And I'm sure in the ensuing days and months and years, that will be fulfilled. Yeah, we should mention the website that Simon uh, is custodian of, hughwalpole.com. So do go there, check it out, and um, there's a lot of great resources on there. 
to explore more about this great man. And I mean, from my point of view, Mark, well, A, I love that closing quote. That's a definition of being hefted, isn't it, really? I love this story about this genuinely great man who had a very troubled start in life, finding peace here. But also, it's not quite the same story as some of the other stories like that that we've had. I mean, he was still had this dual life, partying down in London with the literati, getting into his Rolls Royce with a load of expensive artworks, driving all the way back up here and then letting his breath out and go and play a bit of chess in Keswick. I mean, it's just <laughs> an extraordinary story. It's amazing. Hugh Walpole found his destiny here. Mm. which is a marvellous thing. I think many people have done that. You've done so. I've done so. Mm-hmm. I think many other people in the future will do the same. It's that kind of place. It has a magic that is unique. Very true. Now, uh, housekeeping, Mark, we're on episode number... 95. Oh, goodness me. For 94 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. Uh, we're on social media. Oh, Facebook and Twitter at CountryStride1. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so in one of three ways. You can simply spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbours, relatives, anybody who likes Cumbria and the lakes about us. And all the extra numbers help us climb the algorithms. Uh, you can buy our guidebooks. Uh, four guidebooks in the series so far and the fifth coming very soon. The third way, you can subscribe to us using Patreon. Just go to www.countrystride.co.uk and for as little as £2 a month, you can help us pay for the bills and keep this podcast series going. And we've got a few people to thank on this first edition of 2023. So thank you so much to Matt and Tasia Malone, Anna Greaves, James Smith, Ollie Brown, Jane Martin... Brian Parkinson, Roger Warbrick, Simon Vaux and Jim Wood. Thank you all so much. You help this series of podcasts to continue. Next up, I'm not exactly sure what we're doing, but it'll be something brilliant. And from today and the last of the good weather in the Vale of Keswick, looking over Derwent Water, we're saying goodbye for now.